1: Talk to your local agent today. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living.
2: Available to buy now wherever books are sold. We are seeing, not just in the United States, but around the world, just this, this cataclysm. I've never seen anything like it before.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a special episode in a very strange time. Um, My guest today, I think may be my most requested guest, or certainly one of them. Uh, It is Annie Lowry, the amazing uh, economics reporter at The Atlantic, formerly of The New York Times and New York. She's also the author, of course, of Give People Money, a great book about cash transfers that include universal basic income but are not limited to universal basic income, a book I think that is proving particularly prophetic right now as you see a real move as people think about stimulus towards doing direct cash transfer, not towards doing the kinds of generalized services and means tested programs that have been there in the past and i should say full disclosure annie lowry is also my partner um and so this was a a good good episode to do during social quarantine but it is also I mean, this is truly how I learn a lot about the economy. She is an extraordinary economic reporter and thinker. She's been covering what is happening to the economy through coronavirus, I think, better than just about anybody else. And she also has, I think, a frame for thinking about what kind of economic conditions this is colliding in with. That helps understand why so many people were in a precarious position to begin with, and why the damage of this is going to be so profound. And I want to be really clear on two things here. One is that you cannot think about the economic cost of this as somehow separate or a side effect of the public health cost. One, it will have direct health uh, outcomes um, from emotional health, and you know we know that when unemployment goes up and joblessness goes up and people's wages drop, you have increases in things like suicide and suicidal ideation and depression and anxiety, but also just. Direct direct difficulties in health, um, all the way from people can't afford health insurance or they can't get the medical care they need, all the way to we are an integrated human system. And when things go badly for us psychologically and emotionally and in our lives, the stress response from that shows up in all kinds of different parts of our health. So this is going to be really big. But the second piece of this is to get people to socially distance on and off as seriously as we will need them to do, for as long as we will need them to do, we are going to have to make that economically possible for them. Uh, sometimes on Twitter, I feel like the social distance conversation pretends that everybody's a 20-something creative class worker who can work from home and watch Netflix and hang out, and that is not the case for a lot of people. Social distancing will mean they will lose their jobs, they will lose wages, they will never get back, they might see a business they started or they're part of implode, and then what do they do? If we cannot make it economically possible for people to socially distance, and social distancing is almost definitionally a cessation of most economic activity, they are not going to be able to socially distance. And so people begin breaking the quarantines, violating the guidelines, trying to reopen before they're supposed to be reopening. We have to, for the public health response to work here, the economic response actually has to work too. So this is, to me, a really important piece of all this. And it's... um, It is unusual for coronavirus conversations in that I really enjoyed having it, but it's serious topics and you're going to hear some serious stuff in here. As always, if there are conversations you want to hear us having on this show right now, conversations that you feel would be helpful in your life, um, helpful for you in understanding what is a very tough time please let us know we're at ezra klein show at vox.com again ezra klein show at vox.com we're trying to think of not just guest names but also angles on this that would be of interest to a lot of people that maybe folks aren't currently hearing from so we're going to be covering this for a long time so please let us know what kind of coverage would be actually helpful in your life for all in this together and we want to be a useful part of this for you Um, here Uh, With great pleasure, though, I get to have this wonderful conversation with one of my favorite people in the world, Annie Lowry. Annie Lowry, welcome to the podcast.
2: What up, nerd?
3: (laughs) (laughs) This is a big geth for us.
2: It's been been, been hard to book. We're here in Vox Media Headquarters 7 (laughs) and the Atlantic's West Coast, West Coast, East Coast Bureau, Bay Bureau.
3: We have two dogs in this room yeah, who we, are insisting on licking each other. Yeah, this is going to be... We're we're socially distancing. This is going to be a little bit more of an amateur hour podcast. Yeah. But I'm excited to to do this. I am uh, too. Let me start with what I would have asked you. We've been talking about doing this before coronavirus, because I'd wanted to have an economic discussion with you, as we do all we've the time in our marriage. We've talked often
2: about my being a guest on The Ezra Klein Show. And thus far, we've resisted. It's really... It's a... Pandemic is changing a lot of things.
3: Yeah, this is this is the one upside of social distancing. Yeah, this
2: is like the one the one silver lining, I guess. All right. So let's say
3: this was two weeks ago. And I asked you what's yeah. happening in the economy. The headline numbers often look good. Unemployment is pretty low. Donald Trump says it's the greatest economy ever. On the other hand, a lot of people seem stressed. Um, there's a lot of uh, folks who say they can't pay their bills. How do you describe the state of the economy before all this began?
2: It's interesting. So we had this really long kind of plotting recovery that just kept on going. And the economy never really caught fire, but it did keep on growing steadily for an extremely long period of time, right? A decade. And what that left us with was an economy that looked good in terms of headline numbers, but there was a lot of weakness underneath. So one thing I would I would draw out is that productivity growth was terrible. And in the long term, productivity growth is the thing that that helps our economy get markedly bigger and better.
3: What is productivity growth?
2: So productivity growth is basically a way of saying with the resources that we have in the economy, so with the number of hours that people are working and with the investment that we're putting into things like computers and tractors all that stuff how much more are we getting out of the economy than we were before how much more innovation do we have how much smarter are we getting with our resources
3: right so like what holding everything kind of constant like how much more are we producing because of how much smarter we're getting
2: exactly and and productivity growth for a really long time now has just been not great and uh again that's that's a component of of you know long-term gdp and and despite the fact that we had a, a really great unemployment number, so you know a lot of people were at work, we had large numbers of people who weren't even trying to work, and we also had a lot of financial strain among families. And a main reason for that is that the costs of healthcare, education, childcare, and housing just grew faster than wages did for a really long time.
3: So let's talk about that because you were at this big piece called the affordability crisis, which has helped me think about this a lot more clearly, and which basically argues that the headline of the economy, what is happening in the economy, and the experience of a median family have been decoupling. So you ask people, like, how's the economy doing? And they will correctly say it's doing pretty well. And then Mm -hmm. you ask them, like, how is their budget doing? And you look at what is happening in their budget and it's not doing well, the costs of the things people need to live on have been rising faster than their wages, and then the amount of economic growth shared with them. Give me some numbers on that.
2: Yeah. So um, if you look at the cost of housing, which is the biggest component of this along, along with healthcare, in the big cities on the coasts, there just wasn't enough building to accommodate population growth and population influx. And so the cost of housing outpaced the wage gains, even in places like San Francisco where wages were going up really fast. And so it became unaffordable for people to live in those cities, and therefore they had to move out and and take on these really long commutes. But that's not the only thing that happened. Um, We actually saw the cost of housing outpacing wage gains in rural areas, too. And that was for a somewhat different reason, which is that uh, you didn't have terribly strong income growth in those regions. And again, you also had underbuilding. And so when you're looking at what people are paying, this isn't mostly a problem of homeowners, it's a problem of renters, the share of Americans who are rent burdened is really, really, really high. And you had this effect where people who wanted to buy homes, it was unaffordable for them to do so. So they stayed renters. And that's a big part of the reason that the millennials have not been on the same wealth building trajectory as their parents or their grandparents were. Healthcare, I mean, you probably know even more about this than I do. But you saw both faster than GDP growth, faster than wage growth increases, in uh, the cost of families' healthcare plans and the the deductibles, the out-of-pocket costs that they were paying, So uh, the share of private health plans that have deductibles has gone up to something like 80%, and the average deductible is like $2,000 a year.
3: Yeah, I'll add one thing on this that I think is underplayed in this whole discussion, which is, so if you talk to health economists, they'll be excited that over the past couple of years, healthcare spending growth nationally has not gone up as fast as it did before. Faster than GDP, as you say, but it used to be way faster than GDP. Problem is, one of the ways they got it Quote unquote under control is cost shifting. So mm-hmm. deductibles went up, networks got tighter, co-pays went up. And so the experience of health insurance for people has been that it is getting more expensive, that more of it was being paid by their employer before, and now more of it is being paid for by them. When you look at the national health expenditures, it doesn't look as bad. It actually mm-hmm. looks like we're getting costs under control. But I keep calling this a paradox of, of healthcare cost control, which is that When economists talk about it, what they talk about is is overall spending. But one of the ways to get overall spending down is to de-insulate people from their healthcare costs. But when people talk about getting healthcare costs under control, what they mean is what they feel themselves to be spending. Mm -hmm. And what they feel is that they are spending more because more of it's coming out of pocket. Whether or not that in the long run will lead to wage gains for them, I think that is unproven, but maybe. But at the moment, like what they see is their deductibles have gone up. Healthcare that seemed pretty generous a couple of years ago has been tighter. And it's unbelievably frustrating and for a lot of people very scary.
2: Right. And and two thirds of American bankruptcies still involve medical debts. So we're just not very well insured, right, if, if if you're going bankrupt because you got sick, which happens in the United States and does not happen in our peer countries, by and large, um, our peer OECD rich countries. And so, you know, the other thing that I want to bring up, because it matters here, is the role that inequality is playing in all of this. So. I think that when you think about the financial health of families, there's what you're earning and then there's what you're spending on. And so we have these spending problems that, you know, they're kind of sub rows, right? Like they're beneath everything else that's happening in headline economic numbers. They're actually hard to measure and capture. You have to sort of disentangle inflation rates and look at sort of differentially who's paying what for what. But then there's the income measures. And we know that even though you've seen pretty good wage growth down at the bottom in the last five years or so, it remains true that we're a very high inequality country and we don't do much Uh, through our tax and transfer system don't do as much as other countries to blunt the effect of that. So it's actually kind of funny. Um, In countries like Norway and Denmark, they have sort of similar pre-tax, pre-transfer inequality tests, but they just do way more to try to ameliorate it through the tax and transfer system and equal people out. We do less. And so you've you've still seen this, this world in which wealth and income are kind of hoarded or collected way up at the top. And that matters too. And we're starting to think that that's one of the reasons that you have kind of crummy GDP growth and perhaps even productivity growth.
3: So the affordability crisis piece hit a bit like a bomb. It went big and viral, and people use the term. And it's also in some way similar to the two-income trap analysis from Elizabeth Warren generation earlier. Absolutely. And so did things change in between there and then the affordability crisis came back? Or is this just the world we've been living in now for, for some time where there's just this huge divergence between what a lot of economists and policymakers see when they look at the economy and what a lot of people feel when they try to buy the goods that they economically need.
2: Right. So for people who might not have read the book, one of the points that Elizabeth Warren is making in it is that you have this influx of women into the workplace, into remunerative work, right? Before women are more likely to be staying home with their kids, um, particularly if they were white women. And so they flood into the workplace, but that brings with it all of these additional costs. And so you get caught in this kind of place in, in which you have a second earner in your household. Like, that's amazing. That's awesome. You'd think that would make you better off. And in a lot of cases, it doesn't. And so that's like one of the do you feel like that's a fair way to describe? Yeah, yeah. I'd add one. <laughs> I'd add one
3: thing to it. No, it definitely it's doesn't. It's
2: A long time since I read. One the book, of so. the things
3: that Warren argues in that book, which I think is really interesting, and this goes to the point you're making about insurance, yeah. was that housewives were a form of economic insurance. Yes. Because if the male breadwinner lost their job or got his hours cut or something, what would happen was the family had somebody else to send into the um, yeah. workplace. And so they would smooth out uh, volatility in their own incomes mm-hmm. by by basically like sort of deploying the second potential earner. And people tended to live near families, so you could like offload the child care a little bit more easily. And child care was a lot cheaper back then. Yeah. And so one of the things she makes a point of is that on the one hand, a lot of the staples, as you say, are like getting more expensive, but on the other hand, this way that um, families managed when times got tough Mm -hmm. has now been taken away from them. So it's like families are like squeezed a lot tighter in terms of like how much time they have and whether or not they can like send anybody else into the workplace. But they're also um, spread a lot thinner economically because of Mm -hmm. how expensive housing, health insurance, education and childcare have gotten.
2: Right. And so I think that what you have in the United States is kind of a shitty equilibrium. (laughs) Is, I guess, the way that I would put it. That's the technical economic term. (laughs) The technical economic term is you have a shitty equilibrium. You, for a lot of families, until your kid is five, it's up to you to figure out how to pay for their child care, you know, until they go to a public elementary school. You are going to pay a tremendous amount for your health care, and you're not going to really get much uh, actual insurance out of it. You get sick. You're likely to go bankrupt, which is horrifying. And it happens millions of times a year in this country. Uh, We've made higher education extremely expensive, and it's not a public good. It's on you. And so, you know, especially if if you end up having a kid and dropping out of school, you're left with this really heavy debt burden. And the promise was that you were going to take that debt on and you were going to see huge income gains. But in part because of inequality, your income gains are not that spectacular. We now have a circumstance in this country in which going to college affords you no wealth Can you
3: talk about that study? Because you wrote this up and it shocked me.
2: Yes, it's bananas. It's another technical economic term. This is basically saying that if you go back like 40 years, and this is a Fed study, by the way, so like really solid It used to be that you would go to college and you would get this handsome income premium and it would lead to a wealth premium, too. So compared to people that look pretty identical to you, except they don't go to college, you are wealthier and you're earning more money. This is not true now for people who are like born in the 1980s. You get a smaller income premium that, depending on your demographic category, might not even be there. And there is no wealth premium because your cost has become so high and because your other costs have become so high, too.
3: And this was super stratified by race. If I'm remembering yes. this correctly, there's still a small white wealth premium, but no Hispanic and African-American wealth
2: premium. Yeah, there's no black wealth premium um, specifically, and it's gotten much smaller for white folks.
3: Yeah. Um, OK, so I want to like now step back on this, which is to say the, the reason I wanted to have this part of the conversation first was. Where we seem to be in the economy, is it between the affordability crisis and two earner trap pressures and a pretty long expansion that at least from the headline in economic numbers was quite strong? We were beginning to see some wage gains that if you're in a position where the economy is doing quite well, that it's just good enough to make things sort of work out, not for everybody, but like you can get things to a stable equilibrium. Mm -hmm. But that is years and years and years into an expansion. And so now the question is, what happens if there's an extraordinarily large negative shock? Right. And so let's talk about the, the shock. I think most people have understand coronavirus as a public health problem. You've been covering the dimension of it um, that is going to be an economic crisis. So why is coronavirus an economic crisis, not just an epidemiological one?
2: I think that, yeah, this is this is primarily a health crisis and I think also like a personal crisis for people. It's terrifying. We're seeing some of our most vulnerable, most treasure get sick and right, get, get mowed down. I mean, it's it's horrifying. And so the economic crisis is downstream of that. And there's this kind of funny tension where we need to, in order to get control of the pandemic, we need to basically shut the economy down, right? We need everybody to stop moving and doing stuff. And we need to absorb a huge amount of short-term economic pain that's gonna help us get control of that that public health crisis. And so we are seeing, not just in the United States, but around the world, just this, this cataclysm. It's like, I've never seen anything like it before. It's like a two-month-long hurricane everywhere, <laughs> um, and it's really straining resources. And right now, it's looking like in the second quarter of 2020, the economy is going to contract 10 percent in the United States. That's the current estimate. That is probably the sharpest drop, like since the World War II. It's like twice as much as during the worst parts of the Great Recession. Talk, talk about this
3: for a minute, though, because uh, I want to hold on this. You've covered a bunch of recessions, so have I. Yeah. Recessions usually have this somewhat mysterious dimension to them. Yeah. It's like something happened, but we don't know what, or yeah. um, there's a correction from an asset price bubble. Yep. And so financial markets freaked out, and that has made it hard for businesses to get loans, and as mm-hmm. such, that has hurt the economy. I have never seen a recession in this country that is just what the economy is, is a measure of economic activity. And in order to stop a deadly disease, we are telling people to stop a lot of their economic activity. It's so deep in the real economy. Like, how does that make it different?
2: It's really different. So most recessions happen Endogenously, something in the economy triggers the recession. So, the correction of an asset price bubble, or, you know, there's some other kind of imbalance that needs to be addressed, right? Some savings and loan problem, whatever. This is not that. This is exogenous. This is like a comet hitting. It's coming from totally outside the economy and it's just hitting the economy. So, there's no correction, there's just seizure.
3: Yeah. So, sometimes when you have a correction, one of the things I don't want to call it a silver lining. but when you had, like the the nineteen ninety nine two thousand tech bubble, yeah, on the bright side, you sort of had this tech bubble that created a lot of investment. People made some money off of it. We got new goods and services out of it. And then it was bad that it popped and that it wasn't well managed um mm-hmm. so that we didn't have a recession. But nevertheless, you went up and you went down. It was sort of roller coastery, yeah. this is not like,
2: Nothing's getting fixed here, right? There's no sort of healthy upside. You're just seeing otherwise viable businesses get completely mowed down, right? There's no-
3: Talk a little bit about that in the specific. Like, what do you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So let's say that you are like a small business, right? A restaurant or, you know, you're a, a startup, a Silicon Valley startup. During a normal recession, you might have this kind of seizure of economic activity, and you sort of might be like collateral damage, right? But maybe some investors sort of stupidly were giving you a bunch of money. It was irrationally exuberant. There was no actually no good market for what you were selling. And so when the recession comes, like you kind of die. The concern here is that that just everything is collateral damage. Um, and I want to be really careful because like it's it's so hard to talk about recessions without sort of like moral language. And, you know, like, they hurt, this hurts, This, but this needed to happen, whatever. There's no sort of, like, Schumpeterian, like, creative destruction happening here. This is just bad. It's just a shock. It's just, it's like... One thing that I keep on thinking about is that if you have a hurricane or an earthquake, which this looks like in a lot of ways, where you have these crazy seizures of economic activity while literally people are riding out the storm, then you get this rebound where there's this great rebuilding because you have all this physical infrastructure that you know needs to be rebuilt, and there's this boomerang because people just like waited to do what they were going to do during the hurricane; they just hold off, right? And then you know you get this kind of really strong snapback. It's not clear we're going to have a snapback with this unless we have huge amounts of government policy helping people, because, you know, especially for small businesses, they can fire their workers and their workers can go on unemployment insurance, but they still have these fixed costs that are going to keep going. And so, you know, there's this question of what are they going to do then a lot of businesses without help are, are just going to die. It's it's just and, and this is big businesses, small businesses. This is households. It's people with like gig work, right? Um, work that isn't sort of part of the formal economy. It's just everything all at once.
3: And I want to talk about this from a couple different perspectives because I'm kind of obsessing over this piece of it, which is. I think it's really important that we don't think of the economic damage here as or the economic questions here as somehow separate from the the public health epidemiological ones, because as far as I can tell, they're actually two sides of the same coin. And I mean yeah. that in this way. If you're telling people to socially distance, if you're telling people to Close restaurants right now in California. Gavin Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom, gave guidance that he wants restaurants operating at half capacity, no tables mm-hmm. over six people. Currently, that is a guideline; it's not a law, and it would be a hard law to enforce anyway. You mm-hmm. could, but it yeah. would be difficult. The question of whether or not people are going to do that is not just whether or not they're getting morally shamed on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's also about whether or not it is economically possible for them to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, for social distancing to work, you need a very high level of social solidarity. But social solidarity can't just go in one direction. It can't mm-hmm. just be social solidarity from business owners towards the the vulnerable. The the society also has to make it possible for them. Like, If your restaurant, your bar, you're a physical therapist and nobody's coming in anymore because mm-hmm. of social distancing, if your business closes, one, that's going to change the entire course of your life but your child might have health costs you can't pay anymore or you like their schooling costs you can't pay anymore or you may not be able to make rent or whatever it might be and so if we don't do enough to help people or even putting aside what we do to help people like it has to be economically possible for people to socially distance and in addition it's not like only health suffering is real um if somebody loses a business, they put everything their family had into starting, that's going to dramatically change the entire course of their lives and their family's life. It's going to increase. You've done amazing work before on what unemployment does to suicide and suicidal ideation mm-hmm. and depression and anxiety. I mean, it inc- we know there are health effects of this. Like, I'm really scared of this. I think at the very least, we're having a real conversation about the public health side. But the conversation I see about the economic side is both much too small given what we're about to go through and is also I think it's understood as a side dish not like inextricably intertwined but I was talking to Tom Inglesby who's at Johns Hopkins and he had this grid line where he said it's not just that it's not right to ask people to sacrifice if we're not going to make it economically possible for them it's that it won't work.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that that's right. And I think that when you're thinking about the scope of the possible, you have to remember that economic policy can we know a tremendous amount about fighting recessions. Economic policy is not going to be able to make everybody whole. It is not going to be able to be a salve on every wound. We can do a tremendous amount to make sure that we have a really strong snapback from this. And so it'll be this crazy, weird, sharp recession, and it'll look like a really sharp V. That should be the goal of policy. And, you know, I'm actually, I was, I mean, you know this, I was panicked over the weekend thinking that here we have the Fed doing literally, they are pulling out all the stops, right? They are promising that they will do absolutely everything. All of the 2008 style crazy stuff. They are going to make sure that there's not a credit crunch. They are going to keep the markets liquid. They're going to have interest rates really low. So when people are back getting loans and rebuilding, uh, they're going to benefit from that. And we have fiscal policy piddling. But, you know, as of today, Tom Cotton and Mitt Romney are basically like, we need to do more fast immediately. Mitt Romney is suggesting sending everybody $1,000 in cash. It's a great idea. And I think that if you can see moderate Republicans agree that we need mass fiscal policy, we need to fill the hole, we need to replace the income gap socially, Like there's a lot that we can do to make it so that we can do everything we need to on the public health side and and repair as much of the economic damage as we can.
3: I want to put a pin in that and come back to it because there's a whole give people money part of this conversation sure. I want to have, yeah. but, but I want to stay on the economic side of this for yeah. me because I want to talk about the global picture too. Yes. So one of the things happening, particularly in other countries that have been uh, either hit by this earlier or that have been responding to it more aggressively, is they're in full forms of lockdown. So China has basically put 800 million people under quarantine. It's unbelievable what they've done there at a level we can't even imagine. It's basically it's an authoritarian police state under quarantine. Um, There are in Europe, um, Italy, like you have to have papers when you're walking around. And this is probably going to be true in other European Mm -hmm. countries, too. They're shutting borders down. This is hitting. It's going to hit. It has not hit that hard yet, but it's going to hit India. It's going to hit Africa. It's going to hit Latin America. It's going to hit everywhere. And one of the things is that I had this conversation with um, Adam Kucharski, who's a mathematical uh, epidemiologist, and he had this line that now I'm obsessing over, which is we're finding that the only way to sustainably stop transmission is through unsustainable measures, Mm -hmm. which is to say you can't keep a society quarantined forever. So there's this possibility that you're going to sort of have these up and down curves as people quarantine, which means they basically collapse all economic activity. China's buying a lot less, they're making a lot less, Italy's Mm -hmm. buying a lot less, they're making a lot less. And then, at some point, they have to loosen that um as the disease like begins to slow down. When they loosen, the disease will roar back up, then they're going to have to go back in. And so, even if you imagine an amazing American response, which we are not getting, it's not just businesses and bars and um, you know service sector employees. A lot of the American economy is making things for other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is buying things from other countries. And the global picture of this is going to get really bad. And as weak as America's early response has been, we actually, in general, have a pretty strong healthcare system. A lot of other places don't. So I'm just genuinely worried about an extended period, not one quarter, but a year, maybe more than that where the entire global economy is like almost like like blinking on and offline every couple of months Mm -hmm. or parts of it are blinking on and offline every couple of months with all of both like the the demand and supply shocks but also just the uncertainty and can you plan how much of this you're going to need to make this year can you plan like how many employees you are going to want to have and when you add in uncertainty um and 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 planning it gets really scary
2: yeah absolutely so two thoughts on that um Mm -hmm a lot of especially economic historians have have looked at plagues and how they changed economies and none of it is good <laughs> and for most of our economic history plagues were actually like a central thing that that would drive economies you know into the ground and there's this really long period of time in in Europe in which you kind of don't have gdp growth annually you know the economy just kind of doesn't get better in like the 1300s and that's in part because you just have these constant plagues it's it's really interesting because they they understood that you needed to socially distance. So they would all flee these cities and go like hide in in the country. And you know, they didn't understand the disease transmission, but they understood that you needed to get away from people and you'd have these like mass economic seizures and then you you would just have tons of dead people, right? There's there's that's a really brutal way to hurt the productive capacity of an economy is, is to, to kill people. And I was reading a paper that one of the co-authors is, is former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who's still a productive economist now at, at Harvard, and he was modeling global pandemics. And he basically shows that the economic pain, and I sh- he has two other co-authors on the paper, so I, I will look those names up, but um, the the economic pain is both from income loss, right? So the seizure of economic activity, the loss of economic activity, but the worse the pandemic is, the more that the loss becomes concentrated um, in, in just the loss of people, right? Right people die and for really bad pandemics that's the thing that's happening that's really really bad and that's especially true for low income countries
3: yeah i am i don't know that we're going to be able to answer this question on the podcast i am as terrified as i am of this here i am so scared of it in india in bangladesh in Ugh, brazil slums in refugee slums, camps. in refugee camps. Um, and it Ooh. is happening. I mean, we have dear friend who's been on the show, Grant Gordon, who works on refugee issues. Yes. Uh, and I mean, this is what is happening. It's coming. I don't, it's not it's, really a question. It's just a fear. It's just, it's just fear.
2: total misery. And so it should make us feel so grateful to be in a country like the United States that has the health capacity that it does have and has the financial resources that it does have to fill that income gap.
3: And so fucking furious though, that in a country with the capacity we have that we botched our initial response this badly. Yes. That like we didn't use the time China gave us to test. Like Donald Trump wants to brag over and over that he closed the borders. China, great. He bought time that he didn't use, and it's going to make it worse in all these other places. And I keep thinking also, one of the um, experiences I've had, and you know this because I've been talking to you about it, is been recognizing how differently information is transmitting here. So on the one hand, like when I'm on Twitter, everybody's like, hashtag flatten the curve and like yelling at each other about social distancing. Mm -hmm. And then when I talked to even people in our lives up to a couple days ago, they didn't quite realize the level of threat, what they needed to be doing. And I think as we go around, although not that we've been out of the house very much recently, but about the very large homeless encampments in the place Uh, we live, I think about um, all of the people who live in communities that aren't English speaking and Mm -hmm. are not that um, digitally connected and Mm -hmm. are afraid because of their immigration status or something else Mm -hmm. to present to a, a doctor. Like We don't have anywhere near the level of social solidarity, either in policy or in ethos, you would need to have a really good response here. And we've not done the affirmative push of surveillance testing so we can know what is going on. And just the combination of those, the amount we don't know among vulnerable communities is just terrifying to me. And I think for those of us who are like really in the news cycle on this and really online, we're getting a very, very wrong picture of how seriously people are taking it because like you're in a world where everybody's screaming about it. And then it's like, you call someone who isn't and they're not
2: mm-hmm. Or, you know, they are like, well, I'm working from home, but I um had some things to pick up at Home Depot and I went grocery shopping and then I went to the gym, but I was careful to wipe things down. And it's like, well, the best public health advice right now is, is just to stop everything, right? If if you can, to stop everything. And no, people aren't obeying that. And, you know, the thing that I worry about a little bit is I think that we are seeing uh, the effects of political polarization where Republicans and Democrats are taking this very differently. And I think that there's some element of, of spite there, right? I, I'm really worried that you see from some folks this argument that this is somehow Democrats trying to crash the economy, Trish
3: Reagan on Fox Business said um, this is another attempt to impeach the president. And she was taken off Fox Business as a primetime anchor a few days later. But But that was actually happening. And that's why you're seeing polls where 68 percent of Democrats say they're worried somebody they know will catch us and only 40 percent of Republicans do.
2: That's a huge gap.
3: That's going to change, but it might change after it's too late.
2: Absolutely. And the thing that bothers me about that a little bit is is this this line of argumentation that you need to be staying out and supporting businesses because we need to make sure that this recession isn't that bad. Is this is a place for economic policy? We can absolutely fix a lot of the recession with government policy, but you know that means like staying in your house right now and and not doing anything. It doesn't have to be on you to continue um, going out and and spending money. And I also think the the lack of truck. Trust in experts is really showing up here. Um, also, you know, like, did do, do people believe Tony Fauci? Are they listening to what the NIH is telling them? Because we're getting really mixed messages from political leadership. In which you can listen to what Mitt Romney is saying, where he's like, you know, it's important for folks who are over seventy, like me, to be you know self quarantining and taking every precaution. And you still have folks in the White House who are treating lists like it's, you know, it's just part of flu season.
3: Well, what did Steve Mnuchin say that you told me that he wanted a stimulus that was big but not huge?
2: Yeah. Um, and, I you know, he, he is a negotiator, right? Like the primary negotiator for, for the Trump administration on this. And, and this is ultimately Congress's job. And, you know, Trump needs to sign what Congress sends him. But yeah, we need we need huge. We want overkill. On the fiscal stimulus side, we want to be like, man, we didn't actually have to spend that much. This episode is brought to you by State
0: Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
4: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. Borough.com slash box.
3: One of the lessons of the financial crisis and its aftermath to me was you have these two institutions that can do economic rescue measures, one of them being the Federal Reserve and the other being Congress and then the executive yeah. branch together. And what we saw there, and that was a, a problem that began in the financial markets, depending on at least how you want to look at it. Um was that the Federal Reserve was able to act because of the speed with which it can move and the absence of veto points with overwhelming tremendous force. And they put all this liquidity and guaranteed all these markets and quantitative easing and all of it. And then like Ben Bernanke would go every couple of weeks to Congress and be like, please spend the money. Like we have made it It is currently we have negative real interest rates now, as we did then, which is to say that you can like borrow a thousand dollars now and pay back in inflation adjusted terms like 900 bucks over 10 years. And he would go and say, like, you need to spend like we are putting the money into the system. You need to then give it to people, Mm -hmm. like put it in a bag and hand it to somebody. Yes. And like I can give it to banks, but in my legal authority, I can't give it to people. And people can argue about whether or not there's a creative way of doing the legal authority, but he didn't believe there was. And so but Congress. Would not, could not, because of its internal political divisions and particularly because of how the Republicans treated this, they would not do what the Fed was giving them the capacity to do. And so we had a response to the the economic crisis that was much too small on the people side, even if it was overwhelming on the financial rescue side. And what's scary to me here is this is a crisis that is much more on the people side. This is not... This is not fundamentally a crisis of banks and financial markets. It will be that, too. But it's first and Mm -hmm. foremost a crisis of people not being able to go out and spend money, people not being able to go out and provide economic services to each other. Mm -hmm. And we have a worse Congress now. We have an administration that is absolutely way behind the curve on this on every level, as far as I can tell. And so like the Fed is beginning to open the floodgates. It doesn't seem to me like you were saying before, Mnuchin is this lead negotiator for the administration as lead negotiator for an administration that will need to be reelected in 2020. He should be begging for the biggest goddamn thing he can build. Mm -hmm. And instead, they seem to be putting brakes on it. Instead, Donald Trump is out there saying that, well, the Democrats are trying to get all these goodies they've wanted forever, like permanent paid leave. Like they should want everything.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes. So sorry. (laughs) At least two points there. Yes. So. We um, had this situation during the Great Recession where we had huge, capacious, creative monetary policy. Monetary policy did everything they could think to do and more. They were creative. They did stuff they had never done before. And it really, really helped. It really, really helped. But you had a massive undershoot on fiscal policy. So we uh, needed probably a stimulus bill back then that was $2 trillion, and we got a stimulus bill that was a trillion, so we undershot by half. And the Obama administration went back to Congress so many times begging for more money, begging for more money for people, and they didn't get it. And they also declined to use all of their creative authority to do some housing policy that that would have really helped on that front too. So, you know, I wouldn't say that the Obama administration was blameless this in this, but Congress was the real problem, I think. And I'm terrified that we are replaying it. And I think that there's two issues with that. So the first is that as you point out, the Fed can push on a string, they can't pull on a string, right? So they are doing everything that they can. And you desperately need fiscal policy to just get money out to people so they will be able to spend it when this public health crisis has sort of abated a little bit. And the second thing is that you have really bad social effects that come from having capacious monetary policy and tight fiscal policy. You have inequality. It just generates inequality. And, can you explain
3: that mechanism for a minute? Yeah. Like, can you just explain like what the Fed just did? People have heard something sure. with $1.5 trillion. Like what was that? And then like that, that inequality mechanism, I think, is poorly understood. Can you talk yeah. to? that? Yeah.
2: So the Fed did a couple things. So they set up um what's called a repo facility. So they said that they would give short-term collateralized loans. And this was designed to help make sure that markets kept functioning. So they were seeing weird seizures in the market for treasury securities, which are like the most liquid, most commonly traded sort of stable instruments on earth. And so they they went and they injected. That's what it means when they say they injected liquidity. So they didn't actually spend anything. They just acted as kind of a financial backstop. And they said, we're not going to let there be seizures in the market for what treasury. What does it
3: mean that there was a seizure in the market for treasury?
2: It means that it was like literally difficult in some cases for people to trade in government bonds.
3: And so who were they giving this money to? Like who got the money and what did they do with it?
2: So the the thing that the Fed did was it, it set up this facility that basically said to certain types of financial firms, we will trade you so that you can keep your books and keep your trading going. We will trade you like $100 in cash for $100 in government debt. You'll pay us a tiny amount of interest for the option. Normally, repo, this is... Is, this is repo. Normally the repo markets function um, between private actors, but they're saying like, look, we're providing this liquidity. We're not going to allow seizures in this market. And so it's sort so that's of one thing that they do. And,
3: and so part of that, just to draw it out a little bit more, too, is that yeah. you can give us something that is riskier than what we are giving you. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that, that's like part of the key there, right? That you can give us these government debts that people are currently even a little bit afraid of and don't aren't taking as collateral in the way they maybe normally would. We will take it as collateral and they can even open that up and take riskier things as collateral in return for the yeah, money. They,
2: they could if they want to. So in the private repo markets, you can make deals for all sorts of stuff like weird mortgage backed securities, whatever. The Fed is is dealing only with the safest part of this market right now. But there's nothing to say that they couldn't set up these like weird ass facilities that they did during, you know, like TELF during the Great Recession, that they could do that again to inject liquidity to say, like, we're not going to let there be like a crunch and the inability to trade in things like like treasuries and, you know, and cash. One thing I think actually is important to note here is that because the headwater of this crisis is not in the financial system, banks and financial firms are actually quite well capitalized. And that's like a great thing. Thank goodness. That's that's great. And so what you're seeing is just like traders are are there's just seizures in all these markets. Traders are doing crazy stuff. Stocks are moving in the same direction as bonds. It's just weird out there because people are trying to adjust risk. They're trying to protect themselves. There's all this kind of crazy trading happening. And the Fed is saying, like, we're just not going to allow like seizures in these markets. That's what we're going to try to do. They have now also started, again, quantitative easing, which means that they are going to buy huge amounts of assets in order to try to shift people into riskier ones. And, and so they'll do that. They opened up dollar swap lines with other countries, swap lines with other countries. And so what that's doing is the Fed is saying we're a, a lender of last resort for American financial institutions. But um, a lot of um, banks and other financial institutions around the world, there's going to be demand for dollars. And so we're going to make sure that we're shooting. We can't be a lender of last resort in Turkey, but we can make sure that Turkey has enough dollars to so that the Turkish central bank can act as a lender of last resort over there. And so they're not with none of this. Are they like really spending any money? That's really important. They did not spend one point five trillion dollars setting up repo. But they are just saying, like, we're going to do everything that we can to act as a backstop.
3: So traditional firms right now are tightening because there's just too much risk out there. And the Fed is just going to say, like, we are not as worried about the risk because we can create money out of thin air. And so, like, we will play this role for you. And like, you can keep going about your normal business. You're going to pay us back when this is over. Like, it's all fine. How does that lead to inequality? What's the inequality mechanism here?
2: So we kind of actually sort of didn't even talk about the primary thing that the Fed has done, which is interest rates are zero now. Right. Yeah. Um, That's like the biggest, giantest lever that they pull. And they pulled it really fast and they moved interest rates to nothing.
3: And that was coming from 0.5, 0.25. It wasn't a huge jump.
2: Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a big jump because interest rates hadn't gotten that high again. Interest rates had maintained like they were really, really low. But it was I mean, it was a big single drop that they kind of like jerked that lever. Right. They're just like, okay, great. Interest rates are zero. And we're going to leave them there until we're confident that the crisis has passed. They said that. And they are. And notably, they're just communicating that they're willing to do stuff. And that's really important to the markets, too. Like, go ahead. Do your risk off. Make your trades. We're going to do everything we can to prevent seizures in the financial system just so that, you know, you can be confident in that. And and that's that's really, really Im, Im important. And so, sorry, now I've forgotten what I was saying.
3: Inequality. How is this going to lead to inequality?
2: So... Basically, the Fed left interest rates really, really low. And this meant that if you had the capacity to take on debt, it was a great time to do so. So you could like get money and you could use it to invest. And credit remained really tight. It remained kind of hard. For just like average families and small businesses to get loans. But all of a sudden, it remained pretty easy for like rich folks to get. You're them. talking
3: here in the financial crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is like, you know, this is what happened last time.
2: Yeah, 10 years ago. And so companies had this like lifeline where they were just like borrowing money for free for forever. And that let them make investments. And that, you know, all the things that the Fed was doing, it helped prop up share prices. It made it so that, you know, there was just a lot of trading and activity that financial firms, big firms, rich people, hedge funds could do that like didn't do anything for for lower income people, households, small businesses because they couldn't access the credit in the same way. And so there' was this this idea that that the Fed generated inequality. And Ben Bernanke himself has addressed this and has kind of said, would it have been better if the Fed hadn't done this? Like, no, because like you just need economic activity to be happening. And so, you know, if this is if this is like one of the downstream effects of it, is it is is everybody better off if the economy is smaller. So had there been more fiscal policy, there would have been more help for households. Uh, economic activity would have rebounded more strongly faster and you wouldn't have had the same inequality, I think. There's yeah, an argument, right? This seems
3: to me to be the the thing that if you have there's no reason what the Fed is doing should generate inequality because what should happen is that the Fed brings interest rates down to basically a negative level inflation adjusted. Then Congress borrows $2 trillion and produces some super progressive stimulus policy where like like the, um, the Ro Khanna, Tim Ryan idea right now mm-hmm. to give like pretty big cash grants to anybody who's been making less than $65,000. Right. But if you have super loose Fed policy and super tight congressional policy, yeah. then you're going to get inequality because the only people with access to the money are the people who can get it directly from the Fed. And
2: it just took forever for regular families to rebound right? They they weren't out doing a ton of spending and starting new businesses. The pain was extraordinary and it lasted for a really long time. You had huge rates of unemployment, long-term unemployment, and just, you know, like median income growth was terrible. We weren't generating a ton of economic activity because low-income families were doing well and were feeling like, you know, they were on a path upward. And I just worry, I also think that there was a perceptual thing. And I think that you are seeing that now. wait, the Fed will do literally anything for banks, and we can't even get bigger food stamps, right? It's led to a lot of like kind of anger at the Fed, even though the Fed is just doing what it can do. And, you know, maybe at some point in the future, they'll actually do fiscal policy um, if they decide that, you know, that Congress can't be trusted to do it. But I, I think that it has led to a lot of anger at the Fed, even though, again, the Fed isn't the one that should be showering the helicopter money on people. Let me
3: ask that as a big dumb question, though. The the term helicopter money comes from Ben Bernanke, that in one of these situations, like what you basically want to do is throw money out of a helicopter. Yeah. Why can't the Fed just throw money out of the helicopter? Why can they make it possible for Goldman Sachs or Wells Fargo to, to get these like great loans, but I can't go and get some of this collateralized money from the Fed or like you know, give them my PlayStation 4 as an asset and get, you know, a <laughs> yeah. loan of whatever. Like, why is it that the Fed is built such that it can do this for financial firms, not just for governments, but financial firms, yeah. but not for individual people? Or can it? And they're just not being creative enough in their use of legal authority.
2: Yeah, 133 133 emergency legal authority. So the basic answer is just that, yeah, that's just not how they're set up to do things. There are laws about this. There are like regulations within the Fed. I would also note that like the Fed literally is not set up to do it. So if you wanted to create some people have talked about basically Sorry, I shouldn't be. It's just it's a little weird. It's a little weird. There's this idea that every American with your social security number could incorporate as a bank and then could get access to um, like zero cost collateralized loans from the Fed. So you bring the Fed a sock and then you get a loan for a thousand dollars and you don't pay back your loan and the Fed keeps the sock. And this would be a way to do this. But the Fed like literally is not.
3: this is the mint the coin of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: But the Fed isn't is not literally set up to do this. And so I think that the answer is that they they could, but probably you would need, and I'm not an expert on financial regulatory law. There might need to be legal changes. Treasury has a veto over thirteen three. Um so the Fed's extraordinary powers. You say, powers. yeah what
3: 133 is.
2: This is like a reference to what the Fed can do in an emergency, which is a lot, but um they need treasury to sign off on on things in in many cases. So the Fed could the Fed could, right, and um, other central banks have, and and there's no reason that that the Fed couldn't do fiscal policy. But the way we have things set up right now, it makes sense for the Fed to do what the Fed does, and for Congress, it is Congress's job. Congress should be doing this. They are the ones who set the laws on this. There's, it's could be instantaneous. Like it could happen in a matter of weeks, if not faster, that Congress could just be like thousand dollar checks, and we, we we're not paying for it. <laughs>
4: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
1: Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But noom isn't a diet. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. You wrote a book, Give People Money? I did. It's a great
3: book. Everybody should read it. Yeah. Um, You can tell me if this is an unfair summation. My... My understanding of sort of where you've ended up on this stuff is that you like are mixed on a universal basic income itself, depending on like what the financing is. But um, but in terms of moving a lot of economic policy towards just literally giving people money as opposed to giving them services or complicated loan products or whatever, you're pretty you're pretty pro just direct cash transfers. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: And this is one of the first crises where I've really seen like a give people money set of strategies emerging, right? You talk about Mitt Romney's talking about it. Jason Furman has an idea yep. that we should give every American adult 3000 and every child 1500 right? Yep. Like that's what the check should be. We mentioned the Ro a Tim Ryan idea. So like, make the case. Like, why should we just give people money as opposed to the things we've done before, which is expand existing programs or. um, Yeah. Unemployment
2: insurance and SNAP and um, TANF, EF and all that good stuff. So I think that in a crisis like this, an unusual supply and demand shock where you don't really have to worry much about fixing the underlying problem in the economy. Right. Like there's not some underlying problem. There's just this crazy shock we are probably going to need non-targeted immediate policies and targeted policies. And what I mean by that is that we are looking at like a literal decimation of the economy, something like a 10% loss of of quarterly GDP. And targeting, so deciding who is in pain and needs help, it takes time and it's kind of hard to do and it's sort of expensive to do. And so the idea with this cash policy is like, Forget about trying to figure out exactly who needs what and creating, you know, sort of specific programs to help them in that way just get people cash just send them money $1000 per person a month is great start just do it right just send it and then they will spend it on whatever it is that they need to spend it on households can pull that money together they're going to make sure that the mortgage is paid that the rent gets paid that they have groceries that they keep their lights on that they can buy broadband um that they can that they can obey the 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 quarantine measures that might come in place so there's that non-targeted immediate cash aid And then there's targeted policies so what are we going to do to help people who are specifically affected by this and then i think also you know this question of like what social insurance and health insurance policies that's probably like a third set of issues and i'm not even going to touch the public health measures so then we're going to need kind of like more more targeted things to sort of address individuals families needs right so you know, for instance, if you had a small business and you had to lay off your employees, but you promised to get them back, do you need like targeted loans to help you keep your business open? That kind of thing. But to circle back, actually, to make one more point on the cash, right? Why not just do this through SNAP or unemployment insurance? The answer is that SNAP only goes to certain families. Stopping being food stamps, food basically. Food stamps, yes. Yeah. It's the the technical name for the food stamp program, uh, which is administered at the state level. So there's qualification standards for SNAP. And so you need to like go and apply for SNAP. And in a lot of states, the the turnaround is really, really fast. But, you know, you need to meet certain qualifying standards. And if you don't meet those standards, you don't get SNAP. So that's like one, one barrier. And SNAP is really, really effective counter cyclical stimulus. So this is not an argument for not expanding SNAP. It's just an argument for not having SNAP be the only thing. And so um, unemployment insurance, only certain workers who have been paying into UI get unemployment insurance. So like if you are a self-employed person in kind of, you know, like gig work, something like that, you're not covered by that. So if we expand UI, you're not helped. And then the other thing is that you know with a something like SNAP, it's it's you can only spend it on food, and there's actually pretty tight restrictions even on what you can buy. So my favorite example of these is in a lot of states you can only buy domestically produced cheese. So like if you want to buy cheese that was you know produced in Mexico, like you can't use your SNAP money on that. Like
3: it'll come to the register and it'll yeah it's just it'll, like, you like can't do beep it or something.
2: And you know so you can't you can't use SNAP on on diapers. You can't use Snap very easily to, um, Uh, keep your lights on if the issue is that like you have money for groceries but like you have this giant utility bill and you can't pay it and so this is the beauty of cash is you don't have to figure out people's needs people know their needs and you just trust them to do the right thing with the money and we know that they do we have lots of studies on that can you
3: just talk about not necessarily the studies but this is something I think your book is so beautiful on but the moral dimension of this it's so much of our social policy is built on the idea that we don't trust people yes that if you're poor it's probably because you've made a bunch of bad decisions and you can't be trusted so we'll give you this that you can only use on domestic cheese. Right. As opposed to saying like, because we don't want you to take the money and spend it on booze or drugs or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, more
2: bad decisions. More
3: bad decisions. Um, As opposed to a model of trusting people um, and sending them the money, believing that they will know what it is they need. Like, for instance, I mean, you you know that one of the things I did immediately as I started to get worried was I bought a bunch of diapers. Um, yes. And like formula. And like, that's what I I was like, a lot of things I figured we could handle, but like not a diaper shortage. And so,
2: <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> perish the thought! It's like literally, no worse thought that I have ever had than yes. a diaper shortage. Um, can you just
3: talk a little bit about that difference between social policy built for like the undeserving poor, morally versus like understanding social policy is built for like just people?
2: Yes. So this actually there's like a really long, rich history of um, and it goes back to the like Elizabethan poor laws, this idea that you are going to categorize people by need and you are going to have the state kind of decide are is this like a person who is deserving of help or not? And when you give that help, you are going to be really paternalistic about it, right? So in order to get these food stamps, you have a work requirement and you have to tell us how much work you're doing and um, where you're doing it. And you need to fill out all of these forms and you have to go to this office and maybe you have to pee in a cup. And so the thing that you were trying to do is you were trying to paternalistically change the behavior of the poor and the the impulse here is to, to correct, right? This is like a discipline and a, like a discipline and a, and a punishment. There are some good effects here, right? Like sometimes you really can get people to to go back to work, whereas otherwise they might not have gone back to work. But there are lots of terrible effects too. So one is that the people who cannot comply with your requirements are often the poorest and most vulnerable people. And they they lose help. This is why we have such high rates of extreme poverty in this country. The second is that very often you are trying to help kids in a family more so than their parents. But those kids lose benefits, too, if the parents can't comply. And other countries do not do this. And it is a reason that we have so much child poverty in this country something like four times the rate of Denmark. And it's because we tolerate it. We're willing to say, like, sorry, kid, like your mom didn't show up at these appointments and she failed a drug test. So no help for you. And, you know, we focus on the actions of the parent, but we really, really hurt the kid. The second is that you just have this kind of like kudzu. It's just hard to get things. And and um, it's really great research showing that that Poor folks don't want to feel judged by the state. They don't want to have a bunch of really negative interactions with social workers. So they don't participate in the programs. They don't, they don't take up uh, the programs at the rates that you would want them to. This is an unpleasant, terrible process in a lot of cases. So Luke Schaefer and Kathy Eden's work on this is really amazing. And I would say that the flip side of this is we have tremendous amounts of evidence about what happens when you just give people cash. And the answer is that, like, by and large, they just buy more of what they were buying before. Their spending patterns do not change. They just buy more, right? More groceries, um, more gas for their car, more stuff for their kids, more clothes, right? And we've shown again and again that when you give people cash in all sorts of different contexts in all sorts of different ways, they don't misuse the money.
3: One thing that I I keep thinking about all this, and this is like a very Bernie Sanders point, but... We are asking for a lot of social solidarity and sacrifice from people right now to whom we have not extended social solidarity and sacrifice before. Mm-hmm. People who were not getting paid leave, were're not getting paid sick leave. We're not getting um reliable health insurance or a lot of folks who are quite low income in these states that have not expanded Medicaid, right, who've been like, working their asses off with very little to show for it. And now all of a sudden we're saying, like, we need you to follow these guidelines, even though you're young and healthy, um, even though it's going to be economically ruinous for you. Mm-hmm. Um, please like, stand in solidarity with your fellow Americans when we haven't been doing it for you. And it, it's something that I'm obsessing about a bit, but that social solidarity doesn't just go one way. It would be, I. it is not my view in any way. I want to be clear about this, that if we, you know, like you can look in countries that do have single payer health care programs, like the disease is very bad there too. But in terms of what we were asking of people, it would be much easier to ask it of them. And it would be much easier for them to comply mm-hmm. if we had had solidarity in our social policy before today. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we didn't, um, you know, Bernie Sanders has been in some debates and speeches, like sort of making a now more than ever argument, right? Like now more than ever, this shows that we've needed, you know, this so this kind of social policy revolution. And I think he's quite right on this that you mm-hmm. really see, you really see not just the policy failures here, but the sort of spiritual and communitarian failures mm-hmm. um, of all of a sudden we need a spirit, an ethos. That we have not shown each other before mm-hmm. to activate instantly. Yeah. But having not built it, uh, in many cases, it's not there.
2: Right. I really think that there's kind of like a wartime economies equivalent here. So um, there's all sorts of interesting studies about what happens to economies at war, right? Like GDP doesn't really matter. People kind of stop caring so much about like, you know, medium income, because there's this idea of like, okay, we need to all sacrifice everything now we need to turn the entire capacity of our economy in one direction. And these economies are amazing in some sense. And often it's all kind of terrible, right? Like war is war is misery and hell and awful. Um, but yeah, I don't think that we have that same sort of sense of like, okay, let's all hold hands and let's do this together because we have a heavily individualistic country. And one of the things that I think is so interesting is that here we pay more We spend more on healthcare and health insurance than like basically anybody else. Right. And we're still dramatically underinsured. We do not have the public goods that other countries have. And we don't have the social insurance that other countries have. We just don't. We don't have the safety net. We don't have communitarianism here. It's a very go it alone government setup. You can't go it alone in a pandemic. It doesn't work that way. So I think that 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 you know I'm just interested to see downstream. There was a there was a poll that was going around that was showing really big shifts towards universal health insurance in the wake of this. And I wonder if it isn't just like okay, like we can't go it alone in a world of climate change and global pandemics. We can't do that.
3: So one of the the, the flip side of this argument, right? The flip side of the conservative mistrust of the undeserving poor. Is the progressive mistrust of the undeserving rich, mm-hmm. and so some of the plans you've been seeing come out. I saw Mitt Romney getting criticized by uh, by people saying, "I don't need a thousand dollars. Like you shouldn't be sending it to me, um, mm-hmm. or you shouldn't be sending it to Bill Gates." Um, the Rokana Tim Ryan plan, which I actually think has a lot to recommend it. Mm-hmm. But it's cut off at $65,000 in the previous year's earnings seems very low to me.
2: Yeah. And this You, you have at, four kids and you live in an expensive place. And you make
3: $75,000. I mean, it, yeah, you were. And it also just strikes me as a difference between understanding the policies we need to put in place here as sympathetic or dealing with the worst hit as opposed to economic rescue. Mm -hmm. Like if it's economic rescue, what you want to do is give it to a very large amount of people so they spend it. Um, Now, give more to the poor. I'm all for that. But this idea that a family that has been like making $120,000 but is now about to suffer very bad income disruption, that they like can't use a boost right now, Mm -hmm. you know, when they've got three kids, one of whom is in college, Mm -hmm. like is wrong. And you don't want that kid to have to stop going to college or something because they're, you know, they're not able to pay or they can't deal with the loans or or whatever it might be. Sort of similarly, you could imagine things like canceling. I mean, we're not going to do this, but you could imagine a lot here where if you got out of the idea of, you are trying to make people whole for something they've given up. You do want to do that. We're going to need to do that. But also, you just need to get money into people's hands so they can spend it so the economy doesn't collapse because if the economy collapses, there's going to be a lot more people you need to make whole. Yeah, and they're just the constant moralism of our economic policy discussion seems like a real hindrance here.
2: Yeah. So one thing I just I also want to draw out that, that Democrats do this kind of moralism, too. Th- that's what
3: I
0: was saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, so like, I think so, it's there in the Ryan know, Bill, like edge on college. Interestingly, Nancy Pelosi. So there's this argument that you should have just a federal publicly paid for paid leave plan right now. But instead, they do this kind of complicated thing where it's an employer mandate because they're like, well, we don't want to let employers off the hook. But the whole idea of social insurance is like, forget about the employers, just get it to the people. This is something we're doing at the people level. Everybody should have it. And so we're just going to pay for it. And I think that there's a really good argument for doing that. Like, don't do employer, forget about employers right now. This is a crisis. Just do it <laughs> and don't even worry about pay for for it. And then so one thing I wanted wanted to draw out from what you were saying is one of the curious things about having such inequality in this country is that, uh, you know, there's actually not that many rich people that hold all the money. So it's actually kind of in some sense cheap to send them the thousand dollars too, Right. Like the division between the ninety nine and the one is so great that like you know, send the one the $1,000 and then ask them to donate it. Right. But right now, the most important thing is just to get cash to people fast in whatever way. Just fast. And we don't have the time to do targeting. We don't have the time to do means testing. And we don't we don't want to try to figure out people's individual circumstances and who deserves it and who doesn't.
3: One thing that also just strikes me as a no brainer policy, but I've not really seen people talking about it, though. Who knows by the time this comes out, maybe they will be. But it's just sharply increasing social security checks the infrastructure is sure. there you could bait you could double them overnight and there's no group that is going to be more hard hit over the next year than the elderly yeah right seniors. they're basically in total social quarantine and so giving them some extra money to spend on deliveries yep. or like something nice or even yeah. just like making ends meet because there Helping are a lot of grandkids. elderly people who work yeah. um and yes. like they work and it helps them cover them. them yeah and yeah. so a lot of them are not going to be able to do that anymore and yep. so Like one thing that you could just do, you have the infrastructure. It is literally just changing the numbers you print out. It's just double Social Security checks. You could do it tomorrow.
2: Yeah. And I think it's really important to say, like, forget about the trust fund, right? Forget about financing. Forget about the trust fund. Forget about FICA, all of that stuff. Just send it. So I think that there's a really good argument for expanding... SSI, Supplemental Security Income, expanding SSDI, expand Social Security, just regular Social Security. SSDI ins- being
3: disability insurance. Disability
2: insurance. Expand those payments. Expand food stamps. Expand unemployment insurance. Make all of them more generous. Make them easier to get. Loosen requirements. Suspend things like work requirements. You know, um, mass fiscal policy to states. States are really going to hurt because they're going to have a huge loss of sales taxes. So, like, get money to states to fill their fiscal gaps. There's a of recession era programs that we can fire up. There's a really effective small business lending program that ended in 20... I don't know when it ended, Um, but it was just like getting credits out to small businesses, getting, getting loans out to small businesses. Fire that up. The most effective recession-era program that nobody has ever heard of is TANF-EF, the TANF Emergency Fund. So TANF is our cash welfare program, which is very small and terrible. Um, but the emergency fund gave money to states to do subsidized employment. And this was so... Super effective. So they took private employers and they said, we're going to pay like 50 or 80% of your employees' salaries. Keep them on the books. Keep it going. And this kept people employed during the worst of the recession. We're going to have a gnarly joblessness problem after this, potentially, um, especially if the shutdowns go on for a long time. So like, we know so much about this. Boot all of this stuff up. Do cash. Do targeted programs. Do aid to states. Do aid to businesses. I think there's going to be a need for bailouts too, which one thing that I think is kind of interesting about this is normally you have this concept of moral hazard, right? Businesses were bad and now you want to be bailed out because you were bad and doing bad stuff. And you'll keep on doing bad stuff if the government helps you. But again, this is like a crazy exogenous shock. So there's really no moral hazard here. And I'm not saying that like bailouts are the first or most important thing and there's lots of good ways and bad ways to do them and to decide who's going to get them. I am already kind of miffed about the the cruise ship bailout that's going to happen because these companies are all they're all like Panamanian country companies and they like don't pay American taxes and they destroy the planet. Oh, and
3: here I thought we don't need to be moralistic about our bailouts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've never been on a cruise. And I think that probably my objection to the cruise bailout in part, becomes because you know I get terribly seasick and I hate boats. Yes, <laughs> uh, let, let me
3: let me ask you about one other thing, which is that we shouldn't have to have this conversation at all. We should have automatic stabilizers in place so that if the economy begins collapsing for whatever reason, something there's like things kick in. There's small ones in the economy already like unemployment insurance. But the reason we have to constantly talk about jacking them up, um, aid to states, Medicaid matching, all these different things is because we haven't made it automatic. And so instead you have this endless debate and negotiation in Congress, which is a dysfunctional institution. Um, you were telling me about the the, the Rome rule, was it? SOM. The SOM rule, rule, I'm sorry. Yeah. T- tell me a bit about, talk about the SOM rule, but just about, like, what would it look like if we just had a set of policies in place where instead of, like, Us having this conversation and trying to push Congress to do the right thing. It just happened automatically.
2: Right. Claudia Sam is she's an economist who was at the Council of Economic Advisors and at the Fed. So she's like a macroeconomist. And so she developed this recession indicator. So the start, you can say that a recession is starting if the three month moving average of the employment rate. Goes up by half a percentage point relative to its low in the previous year. So that's just a complicated way of saying if you start to see joblessness going up for three months, and so um, this is like a very very effective early recession indicator. And so you could say, oh man, summer will hits, and notably, this is actually a recession where we know we're in. Yeah, this is moving we usually fast. It's yeah, not this confusing. is like again, this is like crazy nutty body blow. But you you could basically say, take that or your other favorite recession indicator. And if that happens, automatically the government is gonna start sending people checks. And you could basically have immediate strong counter-cyclical policy that we don't, we don't have. So We have very weak automatic stabilizers. So those are programs that necessarily, they just expand as the need goes up. We have a very weak unemployment insurance system. So um, uh, states determine the number of weeks of unemployment insurance payments, and they often are not very generous, right? Like they're capped. They don't really replace all of your income, And it takes action by Congress to add additional weeks and to, you know, give states money so that they're more generous. Um, You know, our SNAP program, our food stamp program, which is another automatic stabilizer. So as soon as families start having need, they can go to that program. And if they qualify, they get it. But we have all these qualification requirements and we make SNAP hard to get. And the payments are often really ungenerous, especially if you don't have kids. Like if you're an able-bodied adult, it's just not that much money. And so, like, we could have stronger automatic programs, and like, if I was devising a dream program, I think you you could have this program that just starts sending cash to people once we start getting evidence of things going haywire, and we know that cash is really, really effective countercyclical policy.
3: I want to call out Michael Bennett, Senator Michael Bennett yeah. who had a very good anti-recession bill that today is as good a day as any to pass it, and has something like that. And I yep. think uh, allows the Fed to do that, if I'm not wrong. I haven't read it in a week. But anyway, the, the, there are ideas to do this where then we would not be in this position every time. I know we've got to go, but uh, but I want to ask you the question uh, we always ask at the end of the program, which is what are three books you've read and loved that you would recommend to the audience?
2: So I really recommend that people read the novel Severance by Ling Ma. I found it very darkly funny. It is um, a book about a global pandemic, but it's, it's like literary fiction and um, it has to do... With like memory and anyway, um, it's a really, really beautiful and totally amazing book. So um, the other book <laughs> I just read, we we just um, we took a couple days off just the two of us for like the first time since having a baby. And I took we that. We got it
3: in right before the pandemic too. got it in too. right
2: before the pandemic. It was wonderful. And um, I took this like lovely beachy time to <laughs> read Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Hagenbotham, which is an amazing, amazing, Recounting of what happened at Chernobyl, but it's about so much more. I mean, it's about like the physics and energy, but it's also about societies and how governments react to cataclysms. And I can't recommend it. I mean, it reads like a pot boiler. It's one of the most terrifying things that I've ever Does it f- read. Feel
3: relevant to this?
2: Uh, yes. <laughs> give, give me,
3: give me, give me a piece of relevance.
2: Um, one thing that I do think is is relevant is it kind of demonstrates how. Chernobyl plays into the end of the Soviet Union. That you have this, this government that kind of insists that this is not a problem, it's not a big deal, they lie, they say that they have things under control, but it's just evident to people that that's not true. They're very slow to get crisis response going, in part because they don't want to believe what is like literally right in front of them. You know, there's this horrible thing happening and, and this like hastens the downfall. It hastens this extraordinary political change that happens um, and, and this book shows that in a really, really amazing way.
3: That doesn't seem relevant at all.
2: (laughs) So I don't know if it's relevant or not relevant, um, but that is an excellent book. And then um, the third book that I want to recommend to people, which I recommend to people all the time, but I think will be relevant in this circumstance too, is Crashed by Adam Tooze. This is one of my favorites of the crisis histories that came out. And it shows the interconnectedness of global financial markets. It shows how different countries responded to the financial crisis and the Great Recession in different ways. It explains the role of international financial institutions. It talks about debt. It talks about average family. It's just a really great Book. It's also it's pretty easy to read too. I think.
3: Annie Lowry, thank you so much for finally fitting us in.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Here from Vox HQ seven, aka our son's bedroom, <laughs> literally
3: till three hours from now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you to Annie Lowry for being here. Um, that was a conversation I got, I enjoyed having, even if the subject matter is pretty heavy. Um, I think there's going to be an outtake after this. So if you stick around for it, just note it includes a spoiler for Love is Blind, um, which Annie and I have been watching. Uh, so if you do not want any of that spoiled for you, now is a good time to blink off of the podcast. Thank you, of course, to Roja Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Show is a Vox Media Podcast Production. Is there anything you want to ask me?
2: Love is blind. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I can't believe Damien did Gigi like that.
2: I can believe it. Real heel turn. We were talking about this, but Damien, so she is chaotic good and he's lawful evil.
3: I think that's reasonable.
2: And I had kind of thought that it might actually work because they both seem like such nutty, nutty assholes. But I was wrong about that. <laughs>
3: Uh, I, there was a lot I was wrong about in Love is Blind, but we've it not, is. we've not actually finished it yet. So we'll We're see, but I've been
2: one episode from the end be,
3: and it is my fault that we've not finished it. Cause I find it too emotionally intense to watch for long periods. Yeah.
2: So we can't watch it at night because otherwise Ezra will be up until like 4am head in hands, just like worrying about
3: but Cameron and Lauren,
2: Cameron and Lauren, all about it. They're great.
3: I hope. Hope it all works out for those crazy kids.
2: Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Jessica, the villain that we need.
3: It's all to say that my one real piece of social distancing advice to people is, or my two is like, one, you need physical distancing and like social solidarity. So like call your parents, call older friends in your life. Yeah. But to um, love is blind is a good way to take your mind off of things right now.
2: Absolutely. And yeah, support your local businesses. Eat, eat takeout. Uh, and tip well and tip well and a lot of local bookstores are mailing people books if they can call in an order that's, like
3: give people money
2: yeah like like give people money or any of any any hillary mantel out with a new book
3: you could have could have you plugged why we're polarized
2: <laughs> oh <Whoa>, yeah <laughs> why we're polarized a great <laughs> book to read during a global pandemic sorry sorry
3: all right well now that we're in a fight <laughs> annie larry new thank york you very much. times
2: bestseller Why we're polarized.